Welcome to episode 279 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show you who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent J. Robert Rob Chadwick, who served in the FBI for nearly 21 years. In this episode, Rob reviews former FBI Director Mueller's strategic execution team set training initiative. SET spearheaded the transformation of the FBI from a law enforcement agency into a intelligence-driven and threat-focused national security service. It was the largest training program in the history of the FBI. The generation of agents and analysts working in the FBI on or shortly after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, took part in this training initiative from 2008 and 2010. In the show notes, there's a link to an unclassified copy of the set training manual that I found in the National Security Archives. Rob Chadwick was first assigned to the Miami Division, working on a counter-drug trafficking squad. He was later promoted to FBI headquarters, where he worked in both the counterintelligence and inspection divisions. In 2009, Rob stepped down from the supervisory ranks to accept a specialty transfer to the Columbia Division, where he served for 10 years as the principal firearms instructor and training program coordinator. He later joined the protection detail for Attorney General William Barr. Rob's final and dream assignment was as the unit chief of the tactical training unit at Quantico. Rob is the founder of the Hold Fast Security Group, a security consulting and training company made up exclusively of retired FBI agents from the Tactical Training Unit at Quantico, the U.S. Attorney General's Protection Detail, and the Elite Hostage Rescue Team. Hey, I know this is not really a true crime episode, but I'm going to slip this in this week And next week, I will still have a true crime case review, albeit a few days early, because if you follow me on social media, you already know that I am off on a two-week adventure to New Zealand and Australia. I will tell you all about my trip in my March Reader Team email. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a link to the show notes at jerrywilliams.com. You'll also find links to where you can buy me a coffee, join my reader team, and learn more about me and my books. Thank you for your support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, retired agent, John Robert Chadwick. Hey, Rob, how are you? Hey, Jerry. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. As you know, I've been a listener and a fan for quite a long time and and quite an honor to to be on here especially considering some of the former guests you've had on here recently and the job you do in keeping it positive for the fbi so i really appreciate that as well well thank you and talking with you and kind of developing what this episode was going to be about we had a conversation about Although I was a firsthand witness at some of the changes that the FBI made, you know, as an organization right after 9-11, I retired in 2008 and I really didn't get to see the major changes that occurred. Many times when I'm talking to retired agents, we talk about that transitional period and you were part of that. And so I thought what we would do today is just talk about that period of time and how it was received by the field. You actually <laughs> were one of the, what's the word I want to use? Facilitators. I was going to say, you're going to call me a culprit. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's important because especially now, we I see a lot of commentary from other retired agents about the Bureau. And I guess for every decade of of the Bureau and now been, what is it, 114 years of history. 
every agent after they retire and look back, they say, you know, the FBI wasn't like it was when I was there. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. But for me, the most important thing is, you know, I've taken on this role. I appointed myself as the person that's going out and telling people about the FBI. Initially, just really for crime writers, whether they were writing movies or, you know, TV shows or, or books. Now it's, it's kind of taken its own path. But I want to make sure I get it right. You are going to help us do that. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is an assignment that I sort of fell into or was, you know, typical of the FBI, voluntold to uh, to be part of the strategic execution team or set. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners that, that lived through it just had a sort of a post-traumatic spasm right there. But I thought it might be interesting, and you and I discussed it, it might shed some light on and sort of revisit that history post 9-11 through the you know 2000s and into the into this latest decade. And it's important to remember what a massive change was expected of the FBI in a short order. The post 9-11 Bureau was constantly in a state of flux and, and probably, I guess, still is. But in those early days, it was almost the Wild West trying to figure out how are we going to prevent the next terrorist attack? And that was the overriding mission. And it's important to, to remind your audience, your listeners, prior to September 11th, the FBI was the preeminent law enforcement agency in the world and, and really did a great job at responding to and proving who did a crime that had occurred, right? So a, a reactive, by definition, investigative agency that was set up to prosecute and interdict and, and that sort of thing. But really, we were not a, a predictive organization in the counterterrorism world, right? There had been some high-profile investigations and a lot of really important work going on prior to, to 9-11 in the CT and CI worlds. But that's not who we were, you know, as an organization, and we weren't set up that way. So I'll start with kind of my early experience with the attempts and the process of the FBI becoming what Congress and really the American people demanded that we become as an intelligence-driven organization to prevent the next terrorist attack, right? So again, this is pre-homeland security. And, and so the FBI and you know remains the law enforcement agency with by far the broadest jurisdiction. And that's a good thing for us, for the United States and for the world, really. And, and we'll talk more about those tools that we bring to the table that, that others don't. But one of the first things that I'm sure you remember, Jerry, shortly after 9-11, we were accused of, we we figured out that we had we had kind of missed connecting the dots, right? We're not going to get into all that, but we, we had intelligence that terrorists were in the United States and taking the flying lessons and, you know, not learning how to land and all that. And we just missed it. We, we didn't connect the dots. We didn't know to connect the dots. And quite frankly, we didn't have the technology to connect the dots. I mean, when I first got to Miami, and this was in early, 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 so January 2001, my squad of, of 14 agents shared two desktop computers. So technologically, the FBI was so far behind the power curve in terms of what we had from resources. On September 11th, many of the agents in the FBI were immediately transferred to the National Security Program and by far the largest impacted program prior to 9-11 was, was the drug program. So that, you know, my personal example in Miami, I was assigned to drug squad eight. I think there might've been as many as 12 drug squads just in the Miami division alone on September 11th. And by, you know, September 15th, I think we had two and they were both high, high intensity drug trafficking, you know, hybrid squads, almost like a, a, a task force type of setup. So that's probably an oversimplification and, and might be a little faster than it happened. But quite literally, the week of September 11th, we were told, look, the FBI is not going to be in the counter narcotics world much longer. Very, very few agents remained working narcotics post 9-11. By the end of September, I had been transferred to a different squad working national security matters. So it was this massive pivot, a huge learning curve for all involved. And so we, we really weren't sure how to do this. We weren't set up to do it. Technologically, it's, it's hard for people to relate to the technology 22, 23 years ago. It, I mean, we've come so far that we take it for granted the ease in which it is, you know, we, we share information now. You know, the, the, the need to share was, was something totally new. 
I want to make it very clear. I'm not bashing the FBI or the management or the intent behind all of this. And, and I will give Director Mueller all the credit in the world for what he did as director of the FBI in keeping the FBI together, because you probably remember, and I certainly do, there was a major call uh, or push in Congress to to break up the FBI, right? And and because we missed the ball, you know, we 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 didn't predict 9/11, and and you know maybe we weren't set up to to stop the next one. And so what Director Mueller was able to do in keeping the bureau together, and I will say definitively. There is no agency in the world, certainly not in the United States, set up better with all of the apparatus that we have at our disposal. And I'll say our, because obviously I'm retired, but I still feel like I'm part of the Bureau. There's no agency better equipped to protect the United States. The blending of our national security program and all of the, the assets and the experience they have there, when combined with the incredible investigative and interdictive power and tools that the criminal program brings to bear, that is what has protected the American people from the next major terrorist attack for over 20 years now. So the combination of the two is incredibly powerful. And, and I give Director Mueller and his team credit for navigating that strong push. Bear in mind, while all of this that we're talking about is going on, there was a major push in Congress to disband and break up the FBI into different components. And so so kudos to the director and his team for keeping the Bureau together. And they did. I know part of the SET program, the strategic execution team, agents on fact-finding missions to our other allies, other old programs, so MI5, MI6, right? That's probably the most classic example. They wanted to bifurcate here and emulate what the British were doing with MI5 and MI6, which of course have a very split mission to protect you know, what's going on internally versus what's going on externally. The, the results came back and said, no, all of these other countries wish they had the setup that the FBI did in terms of all of the tools available at their disposal, and, and which, which really makes us uniquely positioned to protecting. So from 2001 through the early 2000s, the Governmental Accounting Office, GAO, did a series of audits of the FBI. The IG reports come out and, you know, to Congress saying, hey, how is the FBI progressing in their mission to transform into an intelligence-driven organization? And I'll, I'll send you links to some of these redacted and unclassified reports that are available on the internet, and you put them in your show notes talking about kind of a snapshot in time, 2004, 2005, you know, what progress is the FBI making? And it was decent progress, but it wasn't happening fast enough. Again, we're on a wartime footing, right? We are literally at war trying to predict the next terrorist attack here in the homeland. Always under that fear that you're going to yeah. miss something. Right. And GAO is, is telling the, the director and telling Congress and telling the president that Hey, something more has got to happen. It's got to happen faster. And, and so I'm going to read just real quickly the, the statement that really, I think, kind of delayed the impetus of what became the director's strategic execution team. So this comes from the, the GAO report in 2004, 2005. And so here's the statement. Specifically, the GAO found that a comprehensive transformation plan with key milestones and assessment points to guide its overall transformation plans was still needed. The GAO noted that the FBI had not yet completed an update of its strategic plan and had not yet developed a human capital plan. And most tellingly, I think, it says the FBI did not possess adequate numbers of analytical, technical, and administrative support personnel. And that really is the overall gist of what I found when I was a very small cog in what became the director's strategic execution team in 2008-2009. Let me back up. I grew up in the D.C. area. I was a Fairfax County policeman before I, I joined the FBI. And I had an uncle who was a section chief with the FBI. And he kind of counseled me. He said, look, you know, when you join the FBI, you're not coming back to your hometown. I knew I wanted to come back to D.C. D.C. was my first choice. I didn't get it. Miami was my 38th choice. So I joined the supervisory ranks and, and you know, raised my hand. So my wife and, and my three kids, we moved back to headquarters where I took a desk. My intention was to work for a couple of years, learn more about the FBI, and then step down to WFO. 
and spend my entire career at WFO. But as happened so many times, you get to where you think you want to be and you realize I don't want to be here. And five or six years in the FBI, this this you know seeming blue flamer is stuck because you, you're not very competitive for a field desk with six or seven years in the FBI. So I spent a couple of years working on a great CI squad, working some incredible pieces, protecting critical military technology, and then had an opportunity to go to inspection division. So I came over to inspection division, the longest two years of my career. It was an absolute grind, but it was also an absolute goldmine in terms of experience and figuring out the bureau and what I wanted to do. So I spent a, a year in the inspection division just as a very, very low-level staff member. And I got voluntold one day. I got called into the office. A chief inspector told me to report to SIOC, the Strategic Information Operations Center, SIOC. Kind of like you see on TV, like the big operations center with all the TV screens and the situational awareness and people sitting at computers with lots of glass and high-speed stuff going on. That is SIOC. That is yeah, inside. Very impressive. I've, I've been yeah, up there. Really is. Yeah. Very impressive. So I'm told to report to SIOC for some meeting because every division at headquarters had to pony up bodies. I said, well, what is it? He said, I don't know, set or something. And I have no further information because again, I'm the lowest feeder fish in the inspection division. So I, I walked down there for this meeting and uh, Joe Demarest at the time was pretty high up. I don't know if he was an EAD or he had been appointed by Director Mueller to lead what became his strategic execution team. So in response to the OIG reports that we weren't moving fast enough, we didn't have a defined goal or a plan to change the FBI, the director assembled, mandated a team of people to work on nothing but that mission, which is what I found out that I was now assigned to full time. No idea what I was getting into, but you know, you do as you're told, right? This is a I won't call it a paramilitary organization, but it certainly wasn't for me to question whether it was the chief inspector or the or the executive management of of the inspection division that I really didn't want to be part of this, you know. So I, you know, I show up down there and and start, you know, literally that day working on this project which was outlined, hey, we're going to have these different teams and we're going to examine all facets of FBI work and we're going to figure out what's working, what's not working. And we're going then to put in place these changes. We, of course, run them by the, by the director. And literally every other day, we were bringing decisions up to the seventh floor into you know, Director Mueller's office. And I was in there many times, again, just as a little fly on the wall. Director Mueller liked three choices in, in, you know, if possible, he liked to have, you know, A, B or C. And so we would we would present an option and and have it three different ways. And so so typically we would go in and he would have his executive committee of, of ADs and EADs, assistant directors and executive assistant directors. And of course, at the time, deputy director Pistol and director Mueller. And Director Mueller would always be in his office until, you know, right, right at crunch time. But the, the, the committee was there in, the, in his conference room and we would present these various options to him for his you know, final executive decision on which, which direction we're going to take it in. We kind of laughed because I would jokingly refer to this sort of committee of executives as the bobblehead committee. We would present A, B and C to this committee. And generally, you know, they would come, oh, you know, he's not going to like B, he's definitely going to go with C, A is a maybe. And and then, you know, the director would come in, look at all three, and he was, you know, he was very decisive. He'd look at all three and say, hey, I like B, right? And of course, the guys in the room who are sitting at the table would all nod and say, yeah, B's it, that's the way to go, right? You know, and so <laughs> we called them the bobblehead committee, right? Just because they would nod along with, with in concurrence with the director. <laughs> I like that. So, well, yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure these guys would rip my head off now if they could, if they could, because I literally was a nobody presenting these things. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. So one of the interesting things about that time, 
And and one of the things that really was remarkable in terms of changing the bureau was 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 we brought in a lot of outsiders. You know, the bureau hired the McKinsey Consulting Group, which of course is a you know world-renowned con, you know business consulting company, been around for probably as long as the FBI has. And they brought in these you know very highly educated from incredible institutions MBAs to consult with us at every level. So there were there were you know some high level strategic consultants that would talk with you know Mr. Dimrist and later it was Mr. Harrington who were running the team. And then we, you know, the, the worker bees also had some McKinsey consultants that I collaborated with, you know, almost every day. And, and they were, you know, really talented and of course, you know, highly educated and but from the business world and the FBI is, is not business. They would explain, well, you know, we're trying to teach you the business culture. So I get it, man. But if you want to win friends and influence people, you've got to adapt a little bit to our culture, too. And they did. To their credit, for the most part, many of them, you know, took that to heart and changed their delivery, which I think helped. Culture matters, right? And, and again, we were a hundred-year-old organization. It was an interesting time. One of the other major outsiders, and you'll, you you may remember this, Jerry, because you were in the in the media arena. We brought in John Miller from ABC News. You remember him? Yeah. So that was during my time. John Miller was yeah. the head of public affairs. And right. So, yeah, I was in many meetings with him and talked to him personally. What what a cool guy. And it was just a quick story about him. I actually picked up John Miller on his first day with the FBI. You know, Director Mueller hired him. I had no idea who this guy was. I was under orders to headquarters and so as a result, I wasn't working cases. I had a couple of weeks to go. And the SAC conference was in Miami that year. And so I'm sitting in the sort of little command post and, and one of the supervisors comes over and says, hey, get to Miami International and go pick up this guy, John Miller. I said, well, who is he? I, said, I don't know. He's from LAPD. That's all I was told. So I drive to Miami International in my little view car, which was an old you know, brown Chevy. It was terrible with velour seats. It was awful. So I pull up at Miami International and I literally have this little sign, John Miller. And I'm standing there and, and this guy walks up to me. He looks kind of familiar. And he says, I'm John Miller. He's got this great voice, of course. And uh, oh, hey, sir, you know, I'm, I'm Rob Chadwick. I'm here to pick you up. I'm going to take you to the SAC conference. And great. So he you know, jumps in the car and we're driving from, from Miami International all the way down to the Hotel Intercontinental. And we are just shooting the, shooting the breeze, right? And I'm thinking this guy's a cop from L.A. who's now, you know, consulting with the FBI or something. I don't know. And I'm kind of, I'm not airing dirty laundry, but I'm being very relaxed and we're just having a nice chat. We get, we pull up and I'm going to drop him off. And I said, so, so what are you doing with the FBI? And I says, oh, I'm your new assistant director for LA. <laughs> I about fell out of the car. Like, oh, well, <laughs> there, there, yeah, there went my career. I knew who John Miller was before he came into the Bureau because I am a news magazine junkie, you know, 60 minutes every Sunday. And at the time, 2020, every yeah. Friday. Of course, now it's a true crime show. Yeah. And Well, I tell you, if you think about what he did, and, and this is I bring this up in, on purpose. So John Miller was the last Western reporter to interview bin Laden in person. And not only that. Right. From a counterterrorism standpoint, he also worked for Bill Bratton, both in New York. So so John was was very heavily involved in, in the NYPD management in, you know, in the in the turnaround, literally that that that, you know, Commissioner Bratton oversaw with NYPD and LAPD. Right. So so he was he started as a, you know, a, a police beat reporter and, of course, a pretty dynamic guy. He rose through the ranks there. And so one of the things that Director Mueller was interested in was bringing in what Commissioner Bratton had instituted in NYPD was called CompStat, C-O-M-P-S-T-A-T, CompStat. And it was a video check-in where in, in NYPD and I guess in LAPD, they would have a, a weekly check in with the division commanders to ask them about, hey, tell me what your, you know, what what are your priorities? What's your top three threats in your AOR, your area of responsibility? And what are you doing to address those? And really, you know, kind of a granular, almost granular holding to account the different executives. So so Director Mueller, as part of SET or as part of this transformation project, 
implemented CompStat. I can't remember what the name was. It was a slightly different name, but it's really the same program. And in one of my jobs as part of the set was to work with Mr. Miller. And, and he also had a, a guy named Phil Mudd who came over from the CIA to help him design and implement the CompStat process for the FBI, which is which has never been done before. Both of those gentlemen now are, you know, regulars on CNN. That was quite a transformation. And you talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the fear of getting, you know, called out or the fear of missing something. And that was that was one of the knocks on Mueller was the the gotcha questions, right? And so that so there's a there's a famous anecdotal story. You know, the bureau is full of these anecdotal stories, you know, the the more roast beef story and all that. One of the stories was, you know, on one of these Comstat calls, Director Mueller is is talking to an SAC and the SAC is the special agent in charge of this division is describing some investigation they're doing and, you know, really has pretty good grasp of the facts and, you know, is, is relaying the information. And one of the questions that the, the director asked was, what was the color of the car? Right. And it's, it's one of those things that at that level, who cares? However, you know, any any professional wants to be as briefed as possible, as ready as possible, have all the information at their fingertips. So that sense sort of shockwaves, almost like the old, uh, there's also a legendary story from Hoover's days, the old watch the borders. Yeah, story, I was. I knew right? you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, watch the borders where he was referring to the borders of the typed page. And yet the SACs interpreted that as watch the national border. So they had agents up on the Canadian and, and Mexican borders doing patrol. So, <laughs> you know, that was it was kind of a throwback, this this fear, this, you know, I don't want to be the one that gets the gotcha question. So, you know, again, didn't help in terms of you know the overall efficacy of the of the Comstat program. So what I was think, the answer? Did the did the SAC have an answer or did he have to admit he didn't know? The bottom line there is it was completely extraneous to the to the you know intent of the of the investigation or the overall information that's being relayed to the FBI director. Who cares what color the car was? You know, the fact is we're on it. The fact is, you know, this and that, but you know, the embarrassment of I don't know. No, no SAC ever wants to be in a position that they have to say, I don't know. Now there are those that will say, you know, sir, I don't know, and I'll I'll get back to you. That's the mature answer in any case, right? As a matter of fact, SET worked for months in SIOC in examining what we were doing as an agency and the things we needed to change. Probably the most significant piece, and I mentioned it earlier in that, in that commentary, was the FBI does not possess adequate numbers of analytical, technical, and administrative support. And for what the vision was to make this a, an intelligence-driven organization, that assessment was absolutely correct. Okay. So you've got to back up and understand culturally where the Bureau came from. So, so what would happen is, and it's not a knock on the individual, but as an aggregate, it becomes a problem. You would have a, say, a clerk typist or a steno pool or a squad secretary who was a wonderful employee, been around forever. And now there's an opening for. Uh, what was called a MAPA, management and, and program analyst. All right. So management level. So instead of a GS six or seven, now you're talking a GS 13, 14. So many cases we would promote, the Bureau would promote someone with absolutely no real qualifications to be an analyst into a position that is now not just an analyst, but a supervisory analyst. Okay. Now the Bureau is saddled with this cadre of analysts, I use in air quotes, that really have no training, no academic qualifications or background, no experience to do the analytical work that's now being demanded of us. So we had a, a very undersized and immature analytical cadre on September 11th. And then moving forward, you can't just grow an analyst in a Petri dish and you can't just turn them on, turn them off. It takes years of you know, learning how to use the systems, reading the tea leaves, so to speak, right? And I'm certainly not an analyst, but I knew that we didn't have that cadre ready to go. 
And then the other the other problem we found with SET, one of the things our mission was to figure out why. We brought this to the executive management of the FBI and said, look, we're not ready. And, and I think the director knew, of course he knew, that we're not ready to embrace this, this new way of doing things just because of the severe lack of analytical support that the FBI had. Before we move on, I need you to explain to everyone the importance of this analytical program and where it came from and how in the perfect world it should have been in place and used. So there was a push. And again, I think, you know, Mr. Mudd coming over from the CIA, the CIA and the FBI are set up very, very differently. Okay. And they have very different missions. The CIA has an incredibly robust, and I'm not knocking the FBI's analytical cadre at all, but they're set up so differently. The CIA has probably anywhere from five to 10 analysts to case officer ratio. Like most of the employees that you think of in the CIA are analysts. Like that their job is to analyze, to collect information that's out there available, whether it's from you know human interaction or signals intelligence or, or just open source news, all of that, and, and to formulate this picture and then to inform you know the, the executives. Well, the FBI is probably just, or it's certainly at September 11th was this way, we're upside down, right? So, so for my squad, for example, major narcotics investigative squad, we had one analyst supporting 12 agents, all right? So it was, it was absolutely backwards. The agents would do most of the work collecting information and selecting cases. And the intent, though, was to now have the analysts driving the investigations that the FBI was working on based on the priorities, counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and cyber analysts driving the investigations and driving the priorities in line with the priorities of the FBI. So it's also important for listeners to understand the, again, cultural difference there. So when when you and I joined the FBI, you had the agent cadre and you had support. That's it, right? You were either an agent or you were a support employee. And that was literally how they were identified. So by definition, support happens from underneath, right? So so you have this sort of seismic shift within the ranks of the FBI, because now the intent is to have the analysts driving, prioritizing, tasking, assigning agents. As a matter of fact, there was a rebranding, so to speak, renaming. So, So you went from, an analyst went from a support employee to professional staff. Right, which which I fully support. I have no no issue with that at all. But the agents were actually referred to as collectors, right? Which, wow. Oh yeah, you you were now a collector. That was the intent. That was the idea that as as a case agent, you were going to be sent out at the bidding or at the direction of your your analyst to go collect information to bring back to the analyst to then further drive collector priorities. So you can imagine how well that went over with you know, your, your typical street agent. And again, the analysts typically were somewhere in the neighborhood of GS seven to nine. And, you know, your agent gets hired as a GS 10 at the end of five years, they're a GS 13. You had this really strange dynamic there and a lot of irritation and humans don't like change and they certainly don't like to be, you know, reprioritized or told what to do. And of course, you know, Agents are almost by definition all alpha personalities anyway. So now we've got this this new way of doing things. Long story short, the FBI executive management approves all these two changes, and now we've got to implement it, right? So the, the set, the execution team has to roll this thing out. And so we start at WFO. Of course, it's right there. We can literally walk down the street. It was kind of conducted like an inspection would be. So we would roll into town and things would shut down for the most part for a week or two. And so the the set process, depending on the size of the field office, could take two or three weeks of daily classes, briefings. So most of the stuff with set, of course, was designed to train and equip the analytical cadre, the new intel squads, field intelligence groups, FIGs. The figs were all up and operating and we would go in and look and many of them had no idea really what they were supposed to be doing and how. 
they were just told to go do it. Well, so we go in and retrain the figs. And one of my really favorite parts, and I'm saying that facetiously, was to go out and brief the agent squads, right? So it was a two-hour presentation at every field office for every single squad, got a two-hour presentation on the new priorities and how things are going to be done now. And What year is this again? This would have been about 2007, 2008, early 2009. So our initial rollout is at WFO. And I am assigned to support the the agent briefing at WFO. And I get assigned to the Northern Virginia RA. And I lived out in Bristow at the time. It was right there by my house. I was super excited to get out of headquarters a little bit early. And the Nova RA was brand new, just opened at the time. So we host this squad briefing. And and my very good friend at the time was, was over one of the squads out there. Oh, super effective and aggressive white collar squad, Adam Lee, who retired as an SAC out of Richmond. He was squad supervisor of this squad. I thought, oh man, this is perfect. I've got a, you know, kind of a friendly field. And so I meet with Adam like, hey man, you know, this is what we got to do. I'm going to brief your squad on the different changes and and please encourage them to ask questions because we're just kind of figuring this thing out. This is our first iteration. So it's me and uh, Jim Myers, who retired as an SAC, I think, out of L.A., and and another agent that that I won't name, doing this briefing for this very senior squad at the Northern Virginia RA. And it doesn't go well. <laughs> because of the timing, I know I had to be a part of this, even though I was the media rep. I'm sure that oh, yeah. was something I had to sign off. And I can imagine, because I knew that I would be retiring soon, that I left to go in one ear and out the other, because I oh, don't yeah. remember anything about this. Yeah, it was it was painful. That shows kind of the attitude that oh, a lot even, of agents had. Yeah, it gets even better and more painful. So... <laughs> This this other agent who was you know senior to me starts talking about how we really want you to go out and you know you might be there under the auspices of a white collar investigation looking for this or that but what we want you to do is you know be on the lookout for any signs of counterterrorism and I'm thinking wait a minute if you're there for a certain reason especially if you're there under like a court authorized reason, right? It's a search warrant or something. You need to be looking for what's named in that search warrant. One of the most senior agents and very well-respected agents on this squad raises a hand and says, hey, what you're talking about there is actually a violation of people's civil rights. And it's actually a violation of the constitution. Again, hey, this is our first iteration. You know what? Let's let's kind of repackage this and think about what we're saying. We end the briefing. It doesn't go well. And and uh, so I see, I see Adam like, hey, man, that went well, kind of laughing. And I'll see you Monday. So this is Friday afternoon. See you Monday because we've got some more briefings to do out here. Well, I go home. My home's like five miles away. Go home. And uh, late Sunday night, Adam calls me at home and says, hey, man, meet me for coffee early Monday morning. Okay. So we meet for coffee. He says, man, you're not going to believe this. So that other agent Instead of the criticism was was right, that other agent went back to headquarters, apparently met with Director Mueller, as he was meeting with, at the time, ADIC, Assistant Director in Charge, Persicini, who was over WFO, and says the rollout at Northern Virginia RA is not going well. It was very hostile. And, you know, there's there's a crisis in leadership here. Instead of taking what the genuinely stated criticism or question was, it was fired back at the director in front of the ADIC who's over that field office, who turns to the ADIC apparently and says, listen, I hold you personally responsible for the success of this rollout at WFO. It's his field office. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So now here comes, you know, fast forward to Monday. So we go in the next squad briefing and, you know, on Friday it had been a very, I thought, you know, didn't go well. But it was a great interaction exchange. People were asking questions. Now you have these squads who are all sitting there. It was like a funeral because the ADIC is now sitting at the back of the room. And there wasn't even a peep. No one. Oh, yeah. Even before these changes for 9-11, I always felt that the Bureau operated like a critical parent. Yeah. You know, you always wanted to make sure you never gave anybody anything to, as the word used to be, ding you on. And so 
that's even heightened now. The pressure and the stress. Tremendous amount of pressure, right? That's right. Well, and and again, I'm not knocking Mr. Persicini. It was his division. He was held responsible. I would want to see what are these clowns from set saying? What is going on? But as you can imagine, you've got your rank and file street agents sitting in here. They've all heard because we're all investigators. They've all heard what's going on. And now you've got the ADIC sitting in the back of the room, right? So chilling effect to say the least. We finish up at Northern Virginia RA. There's not a single question, as you can imagine. We go back, and uh, now we're ready to roll it out to the next wave, which was uh, Baltimore, Norfolk, and Richmond. And we're starting to get better. And now my job is to go out ahead of time and work with the different SACs and their executive management to understand what the comp stat process is like. So I would go out a couple of weeks ahead of time, make sure that the field offices all had adequate facilities, classrooms, setups, everything they needed to facilitate this training, which was the largest, and I can't imagine there ever being something to beat it, training initiative in the history of the Department of Justice, because we rolled it out simultaneously at, at you know about wave three or four. We were We were in 15 different field offices at the same time, trying to get this through the Bureau within the year, kind of moving from WFO out all the way out to the West Coast offices. And, you know, again, you can imagine logistically what a colossal undertaking that was, you know, to get people who could teach the courses, train the trainers, right? And and then, you know, give these presentations to the different field or different agent squads. My most memorable one, in addition to the WFO one, I actually got selected to do the Brooklyn Queens RA. So you can imagine how well I was received. Very friendly, receptive (laughs) group of people, I'm sure. They actually set me up in a hallway. I was giving the presentation in a hallway on a a bed sheet with with my projector. And like you said, people tuning out. And of course, I've got my, you know, McKinsey consultant colleague with me, and he's just horrified that this is happening. I said, look, man, just let it go. You know, these people are either going to tune in or tune out. This is happening. It was quite a quite an undertaking from a logistical support standpoint. We ended up finishing up that entire rollout in a year. I hit almost every field office in the FBI, worked with a lot of the SACs. We would do a practice session of CompStat. So with the SAC and the ASACs and usually like the FIG supervisor, we'd be on one end of the TV screen. And then, you know, Mr. Miller and Mr. Mudd generally were on the other end back at headquarters role playing what to expect, how this is going to go. But yeah, it was just you talk about such a change and a shift. And so in many respects, I think, you know, although it's it's now referred to almost as a as a four letter word, right, <laughs> set did a lot of good things in terms of putting the Bureau on a footing towards being able to accomplish what it is expected to accomplish now. There's so many past FBI agents who pine for the old days. And, and, you know, I get it. I grew up loving the FBI. I still do. My uncle was a longtime FBI agent. Horace Muburn was his name. He, he was, I think he was the first unit chief of the domestic terrorism unit for, for those that out there that might remember him. So nothing but the utmost respect for, you know, the old FBI, but th- those days are gone. And, and, you know, I think what they're doing now is the best they can as they continue to mature the analytical component, they continue to grow it. You know, the Bureau still has some issues in terms of attracting and retaining super talented, top secret cleared analysts. When you can go work for Google or Apple or Microsoft and make three or four times the salary. So there's some significant challenges there because just like being an agent, it takes time. You're not, you, you are not a, a really solid street agent until you have at least, I would say, five, probably 10 years of investing because it's, it's a contact sport and you, know, you have to develop that experience to be good. So that's, you know, It's a challenge. It's an ongoing, significant challenge faced by the Bureau. And hopefully this kind of, you know, peek inside what happened, the effort to change that mission and and change the ability of the Bureau to do its expected mission helps. Of course, we finished the rollout to the field in that first year. And then the very next year, they had to do all the divisions at headquarters, right? Which was another colossal undertaking that I wanted no part of. I had a, enough of an eyeful of bureau management 
that I realized I didn't want any part of it. Stepped down and went to the Columbia Division, became the PFI and had a incredible 12-year run, almost 13-year run in in the Columbia Division as the PFI and part of the SWAT team there and, and, and did a lot of amazing things. And then finished my career at the very end when my kids were kind of grown and going to college. So I came up and was on the attorney general's protection detail when, when Mr. Barr was the AG. Absolutely loved every second of that. And then when I realized he wasn't coming back, regardless of the outcome of the election, I put my name back in the hat and got my dream job as the unit chief of the tactical training unit at Quantico, which is where I finished. So I ended up being back in bureau management, but running the tactical training unit at Hogan's Alley is, is a I would do that for free. So, Well, one day I'll have you back and we can talk about the tactical training program and Hogan's Alley. But I do have some questions for you because we're talking about a time when SET was just being introduced. Are the basic principles still in place? You know, when we would leave a field office after the SET rollout would hit that field office, things changed, right? So they were now not only informed of what the new priorities were, they were, in theory, equipped to address those priorities better, right? So so the training, this was, this was by no means like, hey, set rolls in and it's all fixed. It was a crash course, literally, in how to become or how to, you know, get us ready as an agency to be truly an intelligence-driven or law enforcement organization. And I, and, you know, again, I will reemphasize that, the criticality of that, so, so people understand the tools available on the law enforcement side are amazingly effective in the national security arena. Well, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that we did not do was to make an assessment or an evaluation of the Bureau. I wanted just to set out the facts of how the Bureau made that change and what that change is for retired agents who may have been nostalgic, you know, about (laughs) how it used to be. You know, whether the Bureau is better or worse off is for each individual person who is listening and, 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 you know, reviewing the Bureau today. You know, that's their decision to make that assessment. But this has been absolutely fascinating to look into the difference between the law enforcement agency that I joined and the intelligence-driven, threat-based national security agency that the Bureau is today. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been fantastic to, to speak with you. We're at the point of the episode where I like to learn a little bit about you. And you've touched on it a little bit about your family history, but why and when did you join the FBI? So I was a, a policeman in Fairfax County, which is right there in the shadow of you know WFO and headquarters and had some older friends who were a great influence on me. They were agents. And you know my uncle I mentioned was, was an agent, but probably the most significant, I had a, I had a friend of the family who I had known since I was a really little kid, invited my wife and I over for dinner one night. And he was an SESer with another agency and said, look, man, I've known you a long time. I've, I've had the opportunity to work with the FBI for a lot of years. And, and you just strike me as someone who would fit in with that organization. I think you need to look into it. I'm not knocking the, you know, the Fairfax County Police is a great organization. And I loved every second I was part of it. He said, but you know, I think you need to expand your horizons. It'll be better for you, you know, as a family man and as a person. And he was right. You know, it took me five years to get in. I applied initially and was rejected out of hand. I met the minimal qualifications, but I I wasn't competitive. And I finally, after just repeatedly applying, got in and it was hard. I, at the time when I got accepted, I was a canine handler, which was my dream job, but I went and, and I haven't regretted it one second since it's been an amazing ride. So when did you retire and what are you doing now? I retired a year ago, almost this week. So a year ago, no, the 1st of November last year, 2001. And I've started a company with several of my former FBI colleagues, all of, who, all of whom were in the tactical section with me. And we now work with companies and private individuals, basically sharing those lessons learned and, and our techniques and tactics to help people stay safe. So whether it's you know mitigating workplace violence, whether it's just 
developing strategies and methods to keep yourself and your loved ones safe pretty much wherever you go. That's what we're doing, having a having just a ball doing it. And it's really been rewarding to be able to continue to share, you know, all the training that we got, you know, as part of the FBI tactical program, that was the best part of my career. And and to be able to continue helping people, you know, with their safety and, and gain the confidence, knowing that they know what to do and how to keep themselves and their loved ones safe. It's, it's just been tremendously rewarding. Well, I like to give my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? Jerry, it's been a, a real pleasure to talk with you. As you know, I'm a fan of the show and, and you've had some just incredible guests on. It's such an honor to, to be on here and share the airspace with them and, and those that have come before us. This organization is just absolutely incredible. What they have done, what they've meant to the United States and what they continue to do. I just, I just love it with all my heart. Yes, we're going through a rough patch. However, there's no doubt in my mind that we'll come through this because of the incredible people that continue to work every single day, you know, put their shoulder to the grindstone with one goal in mind, and that's to protect the American people. And to have been part of that for 20 plus years was the honor of my lifetime. And and thank you for what you do on your show and continue to highlight how important the FBI is to our way of life. And that's the end of the interview. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a direct link to the show notes where you'll find a photo of Rob Chadwick, links to reports and articles about the FBI's transformation, including an unclassified set training manual. There's also a chart tracking agent utilization in 2000, 2001, and 2002. The difference is amazing. By the way, if you are as interested in how the FBI has transformed and you're a retired agent who could provide us with a clear but suitable for public consumption generic review of how things operate in the field today, such as what percentage of agents work terrorism-related matters versus non-terrorism programs, email me at jerrywilliamsauthor at gmail.com. I would love to do an episode about that. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. You can show me just how much you liked it by buying me a coffee. There's a link in your podcast app's description of this episode, or you can visit jerrywilliams.com and tap on the little coffee cup icon in the bottom right-hand corner of my website. Don't forget to follow FBI Retired Case File Review on your favorite podcast app. Now, this podcast is all about true crime, but if you're also interested in crime fiction, once a month via my reader team email, I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, a colorful list of more than 70 books, about the FBI, written by FBI agents who have been guests on this podcast. There's nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You'll also get my FBI reality checklist, where I debunk 20 cliches about the FBI and receive news about what I'm up to and about my FBI nonfiction and crime fiction books. I want to thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.